Nehemiah is the story of God keeping his promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through his people for their flourishing both spiritually through ordering their lives around his word and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program, and the dependence of God's people in His power to effect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through His church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people, so that now, through His continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and His world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's always fun to come here and preach. The, uh, it's especially fun this morning because uh, a couple weeks ago as I was talking to Rick at Presbytery, uh, he let me know that I am finishing a sermon series that I have not been a part of. So, that's great. <laughs> but I, I uh, had some time in the past couple weeks to listen to several of the sermons and was really encouraged by that. And one of the great things about the Word of God is it says what it says. And so I don't have to make things up or try to fit in with what Rick was preaching on because it is the Word of God and it will be consistent and it will line up because God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. So let me just give a little bit of background. You, you may have not been a part of this series at all and if that's the case, I get it. <laughs> but if you have been here, let me just summarize a little bit about where we've been in Nehemiah and, uh, and what's going to happen here in this last chapter. At, at the beginning when we first uh, get to Nehemiah, we hear the plight of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah prays to God about what, what to do. And his dismay over what was happening with Jerusalem had a lot to do with the fact that the city was in disarray, but it was more so because of what the destruction of Jerusalem meant for the people of God. Uh, they had rebelled and abandoned God and were under his discipline. God, in his wisdom, used Nehemiah to restore Jerusalem uh, as a city, but also as, as the people, and was able to bring back the right and proper worship of God the way that he had instituted it. Uh, you know, decades, centuries prior. The book of Nehemiah is an excellent book on leadership and his commitment to lead the renewal project of the people, uh, of the people being restored to worship to God. However, as you get through the first 12 chapters and it ends on a high note, chapter 13 is kind of a downer. It, it, it completely switches focus for, for one last time as it closes out the book. Nehemiah had been absent for some time and we're not exactly sure how long? Some, some commentators think it was maybe upwards of about 20 years. And when he revisits the city, he sees that the people were steeped in sinful and rebellious actions once again. As we look at the scripture, I want us to keep in mind how subtle and easy it is for us to slip back into rebellion from God and from what he has required of us. So would you please stand as we read? We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 13, all 31 verses of it. So... Take a deep breath. I believe the scripture is up here behind me if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, 
but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleaned the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him... Made even him to sin. Shall, then we, shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son in law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thank you for the book of Nehemiah that gives us a great insight into your people, into our own hearts, and to your constant faithfulness to your sinful people. Pray that you would teach us now through your word, Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might understand these things to the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's amazing how quickly passion and conviction can erode the further we get away from a mountaintop experience. Perhaps you've experienced this coming back from a retreat, back from a vacation, uh, you name whatever that exciting experience is. You might be gung-ho about something for a week or two weeks or a month or two, but the further distance you get from that event, it's easy for that passion to erode. Uh, Several years ago, uh, right around the holiday, almost around this time of the year, I was... Uh, amongst a group of friends that had started doing something called P90X. If you guys know what P90X is, you know I didn't stick with it very long. (laughs) Um, P90X is is an exercise program uh, full of DVDs uh, you watch, and they do all these exercises that you're supposed to be able to do in your home, and you're supposed to look like the people on the cover of the CDs. And it's an intense workout, and it's supposed to be 90 minutes every morning, which I did for several mornings. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my wife is here and she's just laughing because she, she saw the whole thing unfold. Um, I was really passionate. Some friends were doing it. I thought, I can do this. And I got really committed to it. But then I, I got discouraged. I thought, you know, I don't have the right shoes. So I had to go buy new shoes so I could exercise better. And I thought, you know, the weights we have are not, I, I, need, I need better, I need tension bands, not weights. So uh, John L. got me tension bands for, for Christmas. And then I thought, uh, I need, you know, I need this, I need that. And I thought, if I could just set up the scenario perfectly, then the exercising is going to go great and it'll be fun and I'm going to look like those people. Well, what happened is that passion and that conviction began to wear off the longer my alarm clock was going off early. And I skipped one day. And then skipping one day made it easy to skip two days. And then before long, P90X was collecting dust on a shelf and my tension bands were being used to strap things down in a truck bed, not, not to help me exercise anymore. And, uh, and my shoes are now just simple shoes I wear every day, not to exercise in. You see, changing the external things, like getting new shoes or the right tension bands or setting up my living room properly, didn't change my heart. It didn't change my motivation. It didn't change my desires. I got all the externals right, but didn't change myself. External fixes will only change things temporarily. And this is true in simple things like P90X. It's true in incredibly complex things in the landscape of our lives and in our communities. And I know that you guys have talked a lot about that. How do you enter into and bring renewal and help bring uh, solutions to the complex problems of a broken community? And Rick has talked a lot about this, that you can't just fix externals. You can't just make a new law. You can't just uh, impose new restrictions and have that change the system. Because primarily we're talking about broken people within broken systems. Because if people are not changed, new structures, implementing new rules or new laws will only change things temporarily. 
if we try to focus on just the externals of the situation, we're going to miss the point. And we will end up trying to apply a fix to the situation that won't really solve anything. Which is why during political season and, and the whole, you know, on both sides of the equation, uh, the ultra-conservative or ultra-liberal, uh, it seems like the, the solution is always a new law or a new um, program or a new something. And I'm thinking, maybe, but let's talk about our hearts first. Because it's broken people that make up the broken systems. So before we look at what went wrong in Jerusalem during Nehemiah's absence, I want to define a couple of terms, because we're going to be talking about renewal a lot this morning. I know you've talked a lot about renewal during this whole sermon series. So let's just define the terms, and maybe you've already defined these, but I'm going to do it for my own benefit, and then you can listen in if it's helpful. Great. You need to hear this. True renewal begins first and foremost when we are reconciled to God. Okay, that's where true renewal starts, is in our relationship to God. Because the brokenness we experience between each other, between our communities, between the, 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 the whole culture, and between creation, it all stems because there's a broken relationship between us and God. So when I talk about renewal, first and foremost, I'm referring to a renewal of our heart, a renewal of our relationship that's been broken with God. See, apart from being restored to God, all attempts to be restored to each other and within our communities are going to fall short to some degree because we're still, still dealing with brokenness and sin between us. The best-intentioned renewal projects, if they're not primarily concerned and fueled by the gospel, they will eventually fall short. So we must understand the concept of renewal in the biblical, uh, the, the cosmic scheme of things, how God is in the business of renewing his people and his creation. We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, when Jesus entered into this world, when he lived perfectly on our behalf, and when he died and rose again. That is the down payment of God's cosmic renewal plan. That he is guaranteeing that things will be made new, that things that are broken will be fixed, that things that are hurting will be healed. And Jesus Christ and his resurrection is the guarantee of that. Where we see where everything, you know, you know the concept of entropy, where things go from order to chaos naturally? In the resurrection, we see the reversal of that. Where we see things going from chaos to wholeness. From brokenness to wholeness. From hurt to healing. And that's what Jesus is in the business of doing. Not only with us individually, but also corporately. And also cosmically with the whole creation. Where Romans 8 talks about all of creation is groaning. And eagerly awaiting the redemption of the sons of man. That in us, when we are renewed completely, when Christ comes back, all of the world will be made new. All of the brokenness that we experience will be healed. Revelation gives us a great picture of that. When Christ has come back, and we see the scene where there's no more tears. There's no more heartache. No more brokenness. And Jesus makes a definitive statement. He says, behold, I make all things new. Does your heart long for that? Think about the brokenness going on in our world right now. Whether it's a relationship close to you, whether it's in your, your circle of friends, whether it's health issues, whether it's um, relational breakdown, you can, you can uh, take the scope out and look worldwide at what's going on with the terror and the fear-driven culture now as we are seeing the conflict of evil around the world. My heart cries out for things to be made new. And Jesus guarantees that that is in the process and will one day be final. 
when Christ comes back, it will be complete. And we will live, finally, where we are, whole and new. When we talk about renewal, then, with our relationship with God, I want, I want to talk in two, two senses. And you've heard Rick say this before. The already but not yet, or, or the now and not yet. So there is a sense where if you are in Christ Jesus, where you have given your life to him and said, I can't do it on my own. I need you to make me right with God. You are renewed. You are justified. It's a one-time legal declaration of innocence before God, saying, I count nothing against you. And in fact, you also get the righteousness of Christ, and you are now welcome in the presence of God. So yes, you are renewed. It's definitive. There's another term, sanctification. And this actually has both, both aspects of the now and not yet, where in sanctification, you are already declared holy, set apart. You are now allowed to be in God's presence. You're holy. But there's also a progressive, not yet sense of that where we're not fully holy. Where the scriptures that say, you know, put off the old self and put on the new self. Put on Christ. Uh, Die to your sin and live for Christ. Put to death the deeds of the flesh and by the Spirit live in righteousness. So there's the battle of sin aspect of sanctification. Where yes, you are holy, definitive. One time declared righteous and, and holy before God. And yet the not yet where we're still going to battle against sin until Christ comes back. So when we talk about renewal, you need to hear, hear me and don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? If you are in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. You are kept. And that's good news. And yet there is a sense where we need to constantly be renewed daily. That's the second part of the sanctification. Where we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Putting to death sin in our lives and striving towards righteousness. So as I'm talking about continual renewal today, I'm focusing primarily on that not yet aspect of it. Because if you are in Christ, you are already righteous and holy. And now as I talk about the, the, the striving aspect of it, it's not to earn God's favor. It's not to, uh, to be better in his sight, but it is to, to, uh, to demonstrate our appreciation for what God has done in Christ for us. Now we do the work of putting to death the deeds of the flesh in renewing our minds constantly. And in Romans 12 gives us a great, uh, just sort of great tagline for that, where it says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed or be renewed in your mind, that we may be able to discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a sense of the renewal, daily renewal of what we think about and what we do is an aspect of our worship, our spiritual worship. We can't rest on the past glory days. So yes, you can say, I prayed the prayer one time and I'm good to go. You might be saved, and that's great, and I'm very thrilled for that. But we don't live off of the old glory days. Well, I, you know, I had a great moment in college, uh, a spiritual high, and I'm going to live off of that for the rest of my life in this kind of coast. We don't get that picture in Scripture at all. And it's actually fun to be here at Holy Cross for me, because I look around this room, and I see men and women who I went to college with almost 20 years ago, whom we had great experiences with campus ministries, and then for some of them, I haven't seen in 10 or 15 years, and I go, you're not living in the past days. You're living currently in a relationship with the Lord. What an encouragement that is. Have you guys ever seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Think Uncle Rico. Okay. Uncle Rico is this sad and kind of funny character who's in his 40s who can't stop reliving his glory on the high school football field. 
right? And maybe you know people like that where they're living 30 years in the past, like Uncle Rico. A Christian who lives off of the past glory days, but is not in the business of living in the now, constantly renewing their mind to scriptures and to follow Christ, you're kind of like an Uncle Rico Christian. It's sad. Because there's no vitality and no life there. And Jesus addresses the churches in Revelation with that very same complaint. Where he he talks to a couple of different churches and he says, you had this, you know, you were a great church. And and he goes through all these great things. He says, but I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have abandoned what you were about. You have drifted. So that will lead me to kind of the two main points this morning as we talk about renewal. Again, this is the, if you are a believer, what renewal looks like daily. And just two things I want to focus on is renewal must be cultivated daily and we must take renewal seriously, okay? Renewal must be cultivated daily. When Nehemiah returned, there were four situations that demonstrated that the people of Jerusalem had grown lax in cultivating their love for God, resulting in a demise of what had previously been accomplished in the renewing of the city. So they had abandoned what had been set up for them, the patterns that God had established for them in the word of God, and the patterns that Nehemiah had reinstituted with them according to the word of God. Now the first two had to do with the neglecting of taking care of the temple. And this comes, you know, at, at the end of chapter 10, as they're renewing their covenant before God, the Israelites make this great statement. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And they are passionate about it. And then time goes on. And here, the first two things Nehemiah confronts is, you have neglected the house of God. The very thing you had committed not to do. Look at this. So if you look in verses 4 through 7 now, there's a, this is a long text. And so I'm, I'm going to kind of pop through this and, and highlight different things that we see here in these four different accounts. But we see in verses 4 through 7 that what had happened was Eliashib the priest who had control over at least where the storehouses and the chambers were in the temple that contained the offerings, the grain offerings, and the tithes of the people where they were supposed to be stored. We get a glimpse now where Tobiah is living in one of those chambers. Now, we should be highly offended by this. Tobiah, as you have read through Nehemiah, you know that Tobiah was one of the chief opponents of Nehemiah's renewal project. And now he is setting up camp in the heart of the temple, giving residence there. He's an Ammonite. And if you look at verses 1 through 3, one of the things that says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And here you have an Ammonite, an enemy of the Lord, an enemy of the renewal project, living in the house of God, in the courts where the tithes and offerings were supposed to happen. He was desecrating that which was holy and set apart for the worship of God, and he was making it um, mundane, was leveling it down to the, 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 the profane, the, the simple, the ordinary, when the temple was supposed to be an elevated, set apart, a physical demonstration of God's holiness. And here they're letting in a non-believing, non-covenant member in, and not only entrance in, which was sin in of itself, but live there. They had laxed in their understanding and their obedience to God's word. Second thing, in verse 10, we see that the tithes had all but dried up. 
that there was no more, that people of Israel were no longer giving their first fruits and their grain offerings, which uh, I know Rick preached on this just a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, of the, the giving of the first fruits, the giving of the tithes and offerings was a, a way to say to God, all that I have is yours, and I'm giving you the first of what I harvest, the best of the crops, as a portion to show you that all that I have is yours. It's a, it's a sacrifice in a way to demonstrate our allegiance to God. And Israel was no longer doing this. Now, we don't know if the reason they stopped doing this was because of the own hardness of their heart or because there was no place to put the offerings because there are people living in the temple now. We don't get the full picture there, but what we do know is both were coinciding. The, the offerings were not coming, coming in, and even if they did, there was no place to put them because they let Tobiah live in the chambers where they were stored. Both of those were signs of a hardness of heart and a growing lax in following after the word of God. Without the tithes that partially went to support the work of the Levites and the priests and the singers and the gatekeepers, they had to abandon their work in the temple and go work in the field so they can eat. So the worship and the work of the temple was now stopping because the tithes were stopping because Tobiah was living in the temple. So you have this great consequence of the breakdown of the systems and the structures of temple worship because of the disobedience of people to God, because of a heart issue first and foremost. The next thing he moves on to in verses 15 through 22 is the fact that business was being tolerated on the Sabbath. Now, you know, and probably know this, that in the life of Israel, God had given his people a place, Jerusalem, the promised land, the Jerusalem as the center of that, because the temple was there. He gave them a place to worship. He gave them a day to rest, a day to set them apart. A day that other nations could look at and say, why do you rest on this day? And they can say, it's pointing us to a rest in the Lord. It's pointing us to who our God is. It was a pattern set up. And even that now is being infringed upon as they had open commerce all throughout Jerusalem on the Sabbath, which would have been a huge offense as Nehemiah came back. As the Sabbath became like any other day, no longer could an outsider see anything different from the pagan nations. As they compromised in each of these areas, they assimilated into the culture and lost their ability to witness to the surrounding world whom they served and whom they worshipped. They'd been given the law, the temple, and the Sabbath. And they had compromised on all of these things for their own desires as they laxed in the constant renewal of, of looking at scriptures and saying, what does God's word say? How do I live? Who is God? Then how do I live? And they laxed on the being saturated in the word of God and began to live according to their own desires. And in doing so, they drifted from what God had prescribed for his people. And we're not talking a long time. We're talking 10 to 20 years from this mountaintop moment where they had been renewed and the walls were rebuilt and the temple worship was going again and they were excited and made all these vows. And not long, and they're right back into the rebellion of their fathers. The last thing Nehemiah addresses in verses 23 and 24 is mixed marriages were being tolerated. Now, don't hear that as a, um, a condemnation of marrying between different races, okay? I know that that can be a very sensitive topic. The issue here is not marrying between different races, but the, di- the differences here is those of the different races of the different nations around them worshipped a different god. And so the issue with marrying a Moabitess or an, an Ammonite or somebody else from another 
surrounding country or ethnic group was not the issue that it's wrong to marry outside your ethnic group. No, no, no. It was a matter of worship of God. It was a matter of you are being led astray by these pagan men or women when you marry to them. You're being led astray. Your worship of God is being polluted. It's why in verses 1 through 3 they didn't allow an Ammonite or Moabite into the assembly of God. It wasn't because they didn't want foreigners as part of them worshiping God. It was you don't worship God. We are trying to protect the holiness of God's worship. A couple of the consequences that were happening because these marriages were, were being tolerated amongst the different cultures is many were being led astray from the faith. And Nehemiah even points to Solomon. And, and we know what happened to him as he married different women outside of the covenant faith. He was led astray from his heart for the Lord. And what's happening is these children are being raised. And Nehemiah points this out. He says, and many of these children don't even speak the language of Judah. What does that mean? It means they are not being instructed and cannot understand then the word of God. They're being raised in a culture that is void of the word of God. So the issue again is not that other languages are bad or other ethnic groups are bad. The issue was purity of worship. And we know that's the case, that this is not a racism issue here. The whole book of Ruth that we get in the Old Testament is the story of a Moabite woman who comes to faith and is allowed into the covenant people of God. God's heart is for the nations, but God's heart is also, he's jealous for his own worship. So as you, as you hear this, I want to be very sensitive to that. This is not about interracial marriages. It's about the purity of worship and raising our children under the teaching of God's word. So Nehemiah addresses these four infractions as he comes back to the city. There's a direct connection between a demise and our personal renewal, the daily refining of ourselves in accordance with the scriptures. There's a, a, a connection between the demise in that personal renewal and the demise of then our systems and our structures. As we see, the, the life of Jerusalem, the religious life of Jerusalem was in decline because their personal renewal was uh, in decline as well. The people of Jerusalem had forsaken God's word and in turn, their practices began to drift from what was right. During the summertime, we, my wife and I and, and my, my, my child and soon-to-be children, we traveled down to South Carolina to go to the beach with the, my extended family. And we've been doing that since I was 15, 14, 15. And I love to sail and kayak. And um, sometimes when I kayak, if I'm heading out off the shore and I'm just looking at the horizon, but no fixed point, no land to look at, and I'm just looking at the horizon, I can be having a great time. But what happens is the tide and the wind are extremely strong. But if the wind isn't blowing, you don't feel the wind, you might not recognize how, how strong the tide really is. And there are times I've been kayaking out, and I haven't looked back at the shore for a while. When I finally look back, I realize, oh no. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work to get back to where I need to be, because I'm going to be going against the current and against the wind. Every now and then when a big gust of wind comes, uh, it's, I'm reminded of I'm drifting. But it's subtle, isn't it? You don't notice it. You're just looking at water. You have nothing to anchor you to. And by the time you look back at your reference point, you realize, I have drifted a lot. The Word of God is our anchor point. If we spend time apart from the Word of the Lord, we can be going and thinking everything is fine, but how quickly we can drift from where we're actually trying to go, where we're trying to be, if we don't constantly come back, renew our minds and our hearts in line with Scripture. Oftentimes when I sail, what I do is, 
I will get a fixed point on land as I'm coming back in. And what I have to do is I have to constantly steer the boat back into the wind to make up for the ground I'm losing because of the tide and the wind. If I don't have that vantage point, I'm going to drift and go with the tide and end up far down the beach. Scripture keeps us anchored. It keeps us anchored against our own uh, desire to stray, our own desire to be selfish. It keeps us anchored against lies. And so are we doing the work of constantly renewing our minds and our hearts to what Scripture has told us? So I have a few questions for you. Uh, if you. If you would consider yourself a Christian here this morning, a couple of questions. No, more than a, a few questions. What do you let get in the way of your worship of God? And this goes for myself as well. What do we let get in the way of our worship of God? Just like the Israelites were doing, they had many things that were distracting them from the worship of the Lord. Where might you be withholding from God what is rightly His? Much like the Israelites, as they laxed, they began to withhold the tithes and the offerings and their giving of themselves and worship to the Lord. Where do you find yourself doing that? Where do you need to be renewed, refined, in line with Scripture? Are you letting the pace and the priorities of our culture dictate to you how you live? Are you willing to stand against the tide of our culture that says, work more, earn more, accumulate more, that says you are what you have. Are you willing to stand out, be set apart in a way that demonstrates our priorities are derived from a different kingdom? They had let commerce come in on the Sabbath. Now there are lots of reasons why you would do that. You can make more money when you work another day. You can get what you want immediately and not have to wait till the day after the Sabbath. There are lots of reasons why we want to infringe on that. Are we becoming more like our culture and less like what God has prescribed for us to rest and to trust in him for his provision. Where do you need to be renewed and conformed to the principles of scripture? Uh, For those of you who don't believe in Jesus yet, perhaps it's the initial renewal of repentance unto faith that you need. And I hope that that is true for some of you here this morning. If you are a Christian, perhaps it's the daily surrendering, surrendering of your own priorities, your own desires, and aligning them with God. Which is why renewal must be taken seriously. And this is just the last thing we're going to look at here. Renewal must be taken seriously. It must be cultivated daily. A constant refining of ourselves with the word of God. The priorities of God. And it must be taken seriously. It calls for repentance. We've seen verses 1 and 3. When they read from the book of the law that there can be no Ammonite or Moabite in the assembly. What did the people do? They rid themselves of all of those who were outside the covenant from the temple worship. They repented and obeyed. And again, that was not an issue of racism, but it was an issue of purity of worship. And they had grown lax in that commandment. The command to rid the assembly of God's people from those outside the covenant was a commandment against syncretism. Do you guys know what I mean when I say that? Syncretism is this. It's the merging of different religions into one, thus polluting the true worship of God. Renewal must be taken seriously because we are in a battleground mentally and emotionally of competing worldviews. Where do we let the culture influence our Christianity? Where are we allowing other worldviews to begin to take root? Uh, you know, have you ever seen the, or, or heard the surveys of when they, when they ask people in the street, like, is this, uh, is this in, in the Bible or is this, you know, some famous philosopher? And, you know, like, God helps those who help themselves. 
you know. And, and it's amazing the amount of people that think that that's actually in the Bible. And maybe you do, and you just found something out. That's, that's not in Scripture. Um, but we, we, we like to assimilate lots of things culturally into our biblical worldview that begins to pollute who God is and, and, and what he is, how he has revealed himself. So the work of renewal must be taken seriously. We must continue to go back to the word of God and say, God, who are you? How have you revealed yourself? How must I change how I think to be in line with how you have revealed yourself? It calls for taking strong action. So how many of you guys, when we read what Nehemiah did, kind of had a hard time with that? Like, okay, if a church leader did what he did, <laughs> he would not be popular. We read this and go, man, Nehemiah's one bad dude. And maybe he was a little extreme. He, okay, listen, I'm going to give you a summary of what he did, okay? He threw all of Tobiah's stuff out of the chamber. He literally threw it out. He cleansed the chambers because they'd been defiled. He gathered back the Levites and singers and reestablished the roles in the temple. He encouraged the giving of tithes again. He appointed trustworthy people to oversee the storehouses. He confronted the people about working on the Sabbath and shut down commerce in the city on the Sabbath. He had the gates of the city shut so that no vendors could come in. And then he even kicked them out from camping out by the gate and said, don't come here on the Sabbath at all. He drove the merchants away and he had confronted those who had married outside the faith. It was a comprehensive effort to confront the ways that people had drifted from their covenant with God. And some of the things he did sound drastic. Like how many of you, when I read that he beat someone, pulled out their hair, thought, man, I'm ready to worship now, right? <laughs> that's, that's hard for me to know what to do with. Other than Nehemiah came in and saw the people engaged in activities that had led to the demise of Jerusalem previously, and he took renewal seriously, saying, we have to rid ourselves of any hint of ungodliness. And where there was resistance, he took action. Now, I'm not saying that it's proper for us to beat people and pull people's hair out and don't worry about church discipline. They don't do that here with that, well, at least that kind of church discipline. They do church discipline, but they don't beat and pull out hair. <laughs> I don't exactly know how to, how to handle it other than he was taking renewal seriously. And he took the sin, the sin and the rebellion of the people seriously, and it called for drastic and strong action. But it was motivated by a heart for God. Renewal must be motivated by a heart for God and for his holiness. You see, if we take seriously what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, then it should be our utmost priority to care about how we show our thanks to him. If we appreciate what God has done for us in his son by reconciling us to himself, then it's the least we can do to live in a way that God has prescribed for us that demonstrates how much we love him and appreciate him. True renewal starts with the understanding that God's holiness, our sin and our redemption in Christ, and our future with him then begins to affect everything else of how we live. We then get to address the broken systems in a way that can bring true renewal. So what does it look like for Holy Cross to care about renewal here in Stanton and in the surrounding areas? I know you guys have talked a lot about that, reflected a lot about that. I'm not going to go into a lot of details in that because this is not my context. This is not my city. But I know that Rick and the elders have talked a lot about this and are, are going to be pushing towards lots of ways for how a group of people who have been renewed in Christ and are constantly being renewed daily by the word of God, how you can go out into this city now and be elements of change and renewal and hope that points to the true hope that we have in Christ. Again, if we go in and just fix external things, ultimately we've done no good. We've done good things that are 
that, that are, we would say are good. But we want to also do good horizontally. Like we want to go in and improve the schools. That's, that is a good thing. We want to go in and we want to improve and help in the foster care. Man, what a wonderful way to demonstrate the gospel. And in all of those things, what we want to do is provide opportunity to demonstrate the hope that we have, which is renewal in Christ. So all of those good things are wonderful. And I know Rick has talked about this before. If we only do work on the externals, we never get to the heart. We must work on the heart and the externals, both. And the externals are an outworking of the renewed lives that we have in Christ. And so my hope for you, Holy Cross, as you've been renewed in Christ, you will go out and demonstrate the hope you have in Jesus by bringing renewal to the city, first and foremost to the hearts of the people who need to be reconciled to God, and then second to the broken systems and structures that need renewed men and women bringing hope and life into. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would first and foremost lead us to a renewal of our own lives, that we would daily seek you in your word, that we would constantly be refining our own sense of who you are, and in doing so that we would then be renewed spiritually and practically in how we live and how we think and how we relate to you and to others. And I pray that you would give Holy Cross the opportunity to be a light in the city, to bring renewal to the broken systems and structures. But most importantly, Lord, that they would be able to bring renewal to the lives of those who are alienated from you, who are enemies of you, and that you would gather your elect here in Stanton through the work of Holy Cross and the surrounding churches. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.